Hello, I am Kevin Smith, and you have found the Terminator Training Show, your one-stop shop for no BS training, nutrition, and health information. For more, please go to TerminatorTraining.com. Thank you for tuning in, and enjoy the show. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Terminator Training Show. I am Kevin Smith. Today's episode is going to be a Q&A episode from two days last week of questions that I provide answers to on Instagram and then I provide a more in-depth breakdown here on the show. So with that being said, if you have questions you want me to talk about to answer on here um, and then also answer kind of a little bit less in-depth but still pretty in-depth on Instagram, go ahead and give me a follow at Terminator underscore training and be on the lookout usually twice per week these days I do a Q&A where you can ask me whatever you'd like training questions nutrition questions special forces selection questions um, really anything you'd like and I'll provide you with my thoughts and some of my own perspective on stuff like that answer answer those types of questions so that's what's going on in today's episode it's going to be a lot of questions we'll see how many i get to it's two days and i'm getting a lot more questions these days so i basically do a screenshot of every question on my phone some of them i skip over it's really like the more specific the better your question is the more likely i am to answer it Um, you'll see this this first question today was actually a dm uh guy sent me a dm when I put my Q&A thing out because it's just a longer question. So yeah, you're welcome to ask me questions via DM. And in the past, I haven't been using those for my Instagram Q&As, but I might start doing that soon because usually those are more specific questions and because you can only write so much in the actual Instagram Q&A feature. So obviously the more specific questions are, the better they will be answered because I'll just have more to kind of work with. So anyway, with that out of the way, let's hop into the first question. Again, it's kind of a long one, so bear with me. Zone two, zone two training is important, but can you do the same platform for zone three as far as long distance runs? I have a hard time maintaining a zone two without essentially walking. Most of my zone twos essentially go into a zone three heart rate. Any advice? Yeah, so for those of you who are not familiar with cardio style training, um, zone two and zone three, there's five zones. Well, depending on what format you look at, there could be three zones, there could be five zones. The most common way to look at it is five zones. So zone two is really where you do your like lower intense. Zone one is just kind of walking. Now for some people, if you're very unfit, Walking may be zone two for you, uh, but for most people, walking is zone one. Walking is great, but it's also not going to give you the same type of benefits as zone two as far as cardiovascular fitness, health, and performance. So the thing about zone two versus zone three, zone three is just a little bit more intense than zone two. Um, Still aerobic. You're still getting a lot of aerobic adaptations, um, and that's, that's great, but... If you are doing most of your zone two training in zone three, then it can be a little bit problematic because zone three is more stressful on the body. It's more difficult to recover from. 
both on your musculoskeletal system and also on your nervous system. So you absolutely can do zone three. In, in this case, if you're like trying to run the entire time and you go into zone three, that is an option. However, I do recommend for most people to primarily focus on staying in zone two, even if that means you have to walk a little bit. And the good thing is if you continue to do this, uh, eventually you're not gonna have to walk in zone two at all. You're going to keep getting better and better at staying in that zone and because you're getting fitter, because you're making all these aerobic adaptations, it's gonna be easier and easier over time to stay in zone two. You're gonna get faster and faster. For example, Olympic marathon runners, which obviously like none of us are trying to be one of those. If, if you were, you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast, but Olympic marathon runners run their zone two, their easy, easy runs. And by the way, most of their training, 90, probably 85 to 90% of it is very easy um, because of that recovery aspect. They run zone two at 530 pace, at 530 mile pace, give or take. So over time, the more you do it, the fitter you get, the less you're going to have to run. So basically, the answer to this question is I highly suggest focusing on staying in zone two for the most part so that you get better at it and that you can continue to recover from it. You can do more volume of zone two because it's so easy to recover from compared to higher zone cardio. However, you can also allow yourself to go into zone three sometimes. That's totally fine. And if you're training for something specific, like a race or selection or event, going into zone three sometimes is great. A lot of, some of my programs have intentional zone three in them because if you're running a race, you're not really cared, you don't really care much about like recovery from it. Like you're going as fast as, you're trying to go as fast as you can. So like most of that race, because zone three, zone three is still aerobic, but it's not, so you can maintain it for a long, longer period of time than zone four and five. Because you're going to be running at that pace in the run or the event, your timed event, it can be beneficial to practice it because you're, if you don't ever practice it, then when you have to do it in a race and all you've done is zone two and zone five or four, which is like much higher intensity interval style training, um, then you're not going to be as prepared for it. However, I do recommend trying to stay in zone two. That way you can build the volume up. You can do more and more and more running. You're gonna get better. You're going to get fitter. You're gonna get healthier. And you're just gonna be, be able to recover from it more. So kind of the answer is it's up to you. However, I recommend kind of trying to use some discipline and staying in zone two for the most part. It's very, very normal. I just posted about this today. It's very normal to, when you first start, you're gonna have to walk. You might have to walk half the run or three quarters of the run or whatever. Um, but as you stick with it, it's just gonna get less and less. So very common thing. Don't beat yourself up about it. You are not alone. In fact, I started running earlier in May. Well, I guess it's June now, but I started running in May consistently. My first run, probably a third of it was in was walking just because I wanted to stay in zone two. So, and then the last two weeks basically. So after two and a half, three weeks of two to four runs per week, 
I am easily able to run the entire time. Basically, yesterday was pretty hot. I, I held like a 9.30, 9.40 pace. But last week I had a run in like nice normal temperatures, no fatigue whatsoever. Yesterday I ran on fatigue legs, but temperature was normal and I was like just under nine minutes per mile. So it happens, it gets better. It's gonna be different for everyone too. Like if you are a very aerobically, genetically aerobically gifted person, um, which I am, I am not like, I'm a very slow twitch muscle fiber individual, which is genetics, mostly genetics. So aerobic training comes very easy to me. Even if I take time off, which I did, it comes back fast. Not everyone's the same if you're very, very strong or if you're very explosive or if you're just not very athletic at all, then it may take longer for you to get back into being able to run the entire time. So I know I said I was gonna give quick answers, but that one kind of needs a little bit more just because it's very common and yeah, it's an important thing to consider. Next question, training principles for muscle growth while also considering longevity. Yeah, so this is a great one. So I'll talk about like a really common kind of misconception um, first, and then we'll get into some of the principles. A lot of people think that like training to build muscle, aka bodybuilding, is not a longevity friendly way to train. But in reality, if we're talking about bodybuilding as in trying to gain muscle, trying to improve your muscle mass, body composition, things like that, not professional bodybuilding, not going to step on stage, not taking a bunch of drugs to get as big and jacked as possible, not taking a bunch of diuretics to get as lean as possible, things like that. Bodybuilding is a very longevity friendly way to train. Um, it, it is probably the most longevity form friendly form of strength training that there is. So that's a kind of a misconception like bodybuilding is just going to beat your joints up. Not if you do it right. And I'm going to show you or I'm going to tell you here what principles I like to use for doing so and doing so in a long, longevity friendly way. Longevity in this case there's a few different forms of longevity when it comes to like fitness, but like this case, I, I'm considering like being able to lift consistently for a long period till later in life, till you're older. So not necessarily longevity, like how long you live, but basically how long you can lift, which coincidentally lifting longer is going to help you live longer because muscle mass, having muscle mass in your body to an extent is very important. So First thing I like to focus on, well, not all these are in order, but these are all things that you want to focus on. And this might be a longer answer too, so because it's really important. Quality reps over quantity. So intensity and very intentional set and exercise selection, um, not doing just rep after rep after set after set just because you enjoy being at the gym and you think that you need four to five sets of every exercise in order to grow muscle. There comes a point where adding more volume is no longer going to serve you. It's no longer a good option. Yes, over time, when you go from a beginner to intermediate to more advanced, throughout that period of time, you're gonna add more volume. And volume in this case, in a hypertrophy or muscle gain sense, is sets per muscle group per week. But at some point, when you get more advanced and older, you need to kind of consider 
the pros and the cons, potential cons of adding more sets per muscle group per week. And there comes a time where it probably doesn't make sense. So then you want to focus more on the quality of the sets that you're doing and this, the reps within each set that you're doing. Because if I can get the same muscle building signal sent to my muscles, to my body with two hard sets, as opposed to four or five, not quite so hard sets, I, in most cases, especially as a more advanced trainee, um, which if you've been training for a long time consistently and following some decent principles and you take it seriously, then you probably are a more advanced trainee. There's lots of different levels to advancedness, but if this is you, you want to consider making your sets more quality and not doing as many of them. What this kind of looks like is, you know, instead of doing four sets with three reps in the tank on each set for say pendulum squats, for example, for quads, you want to consider doing maybe two sets with one rep in the tank. Occasionally, maybe no reps in the tank, although maybe not on pendulum squats because that's a very highly fatiguing movement. And I don't think it's that necessary. The quality of reps, basically the quality reps at the end of the set before you hit failure, those are the most important reps. So the last four-ish reps of every set are the ones that are really going to determine whether you grow muscle from that set or if you really don't. So if you're leaving three in the tank each set, you're only getting one muscle building stimulative rep with every set. Whereas if you're leaving one in the tank, you're getting three muscle building stimulative reps. So that's a consideration because you have to consider more than just, is this going to grow muscle? Because we're talking about longevity now, joints, connective tissue, the mental aspect of getting fired up for a set, getting focused for a set. If you're only doing, you know, eight to 12 sets in your workout, as opposed to 18 to 25 sets in your workout, not only is that going to be easier potentially, or most likely on your joints and your connective tissue and also your nervous system, but it's also going to be easier on, you don't have to focus on getting ready and prepared mentally for all of those sets because if you're only doing two sets per lift, for example, you just have to get ready for two sets per lift. You don't have to get ready for four sets, five sets. Now, if you're trying to gain strength, different. Um, more, more sets, less close to failure is usually a good idea for strength because there's such a skill component and you don't really want to be pushing a lot of strength exercises very, very close to failure most of the time because it's just kind of risky and dangerous and also not necessary. So but for hypertrophy, as you get older, this is kind of counterintuitive. A lot of people think like more sets, higher reps, all these things, and high reps can be important. I'll talk about this in a second, but you want to consider quality over quantity. And with that comes exercise selection, exercise execution, exercise sequencing. These are all super, super important. So you want to select not the best exercises, period, but the best exercises for you. What What's the best exercise for you may not be the best exercise for a 25-year-old or even your 25-year-old self. Say you're 40 years old, the exercises you do now may be very different than, or may sh maybe should be very different than they, sh than they were back when you were 25. 
So you want to consider that as well. What the best exercises for your buddy may not be the best exercises for you. The best exercises on paper may not be the best exercises for you anymore. And there's a full criteria I like to use for choosing the best exercises for you. Basically, can you feel it in your your target muscle? Is, is your target muscle the main place that you feel this exercise? If you're doing hack squats for quads and you feel it mostly in your knees or your glutes, then it's not a good quad exercise for you. And that goes into the next one. Does it bang your joints up? If you feel a lot of knee pain from doing hack squats, it's probably not the best exercise for you. You wanna choose a exercise that does not bang your joints up. So that's another one. And the third criteria I like to use is, does it fatigue the hell out of you for the rest of the day after you do it? The next day, are you still feeling lingering fatigue, potentially the day after that? For example, the deadlift, the barbell deadlift is a great exercise for building strength. However, if you're considering, if you really just wanna build longevity and muscle and feel good, the deadlift is not the best hypertrophy exercise there is. It's also quite fatiguing and it also tends to leave people with kind of achy lower back. So maybe the deadlift isn't a perfect exercise selection for you, at least not all the time. Like I'm doing the deadlift right now um, and I've kind of weighed out the trade-offs because it does beat me up. I kind of feel shitty the next day. It bangs me up a little bit. It's definitely like not adding slabs of muscle to me, but I enjoy it. So that's important as well. Choosing exercises based on enjoyment. Of course you have to enjoy them, but you also want to uh, consider those three criteria I just went through. Exercise order. The order in which you do your exercises is much more important now than it used to be. And it's also gonna be different when you're older and more advanced than it was when you were younger. So generally speaking, if you are a newer lifter or if you're a younger lifter, your first movements in the gym are probably gonna be like your big main compound movements and they should be, that, that's the right way to do it. But as you get older, sometimes it takes you a little longer to get warmed up Sometimes it takes you a little bit longer to grease the groove and really just get your nervous system, your joints, your muscles all completely prepared for your workout. So you want to consider doing potentially other exercises that before you do your big, heavy main compound lifts. For example, on leg days, I always start my leg days with a hamstring curl variation, which is a single joint isolation exercise for the hamstrings, which most people, like most exercise programs, wouldn't start with that. They would start with a squat. But I always do it before a squat because A, it makes my knees feel better. I Squatting with a hamstring pump feels good. And it also makes me use a little bit less weight on squats because I'm a little bit more fatigued. And using a little less weight but still getting the same stimulus out of it as you get older is great because we're not going for max weight anymore. We're going for max stimulus. So max muscle stimulus. So that's what I like to do. That's what I like to do in a lot of my clients. It just, you just feel better when you're squatting with a hamstring pump and sometimes even a glute pump. And then sometimes I even do um, some calf raises to get my ankle 
A, because my calves are a weak muscle group and I like to train them early in the workout, but also calf raises serve, if you do them right and don't do like bounce calf raises, they serve other purposes like improving your ankle mobility, which is important once you get into your squats because you can get deeper and you can drive your knees out over your toes further and it really gets that quad stimulus. So exercise order, also another very, very important thing. And it's going to be kind of individual depending on your experience, depending on how you're feeling, but yeah, it, it's super important. Um, exercise execution, obviously, like this is important no matter what. But as you get older, if you want to continue building muscle and you don't want to mess yourself up, ex- exercise execution is highly important. You're, again, not going for max weight. Your muscles don't care what the weight on the bar is or on the machine or the dumbbells. They don't care. They only care about stimulus. So, Instead of trying to lift the maximum amount of weight possible, try and get the maximum amount of stimulus possible with whichever weight you select that day. Um, That one's really, really big. So frequency, Uh, as you get older in your, as you get more advanced, your frequency, your exercise, your, the frequency with which you hit each muscle group can and probably should decrease. as you're coming up, when you're younger, you want to train frequently. You want to hit each muscle group two to three times per week. Great. You still probably can hit a lot of muscle groups two to three times per week, especially weak lagging muscle groups or muscle groups that respond best to isolation lifts. So, you know, biceps, triceps, delts, calves, things like that. But as far as like big squat movements, pressing movements, pulling movements, you potentially want to decrease your frequency. So maybe you're hitting them every four days, every five days, something like that. Even some people, if they're like very advanced, even one day a week per major muscle group with a little bit of extra volume on the smaller, um, easier recovering muscle groups can be a great thing. So not necessarily, you know, push, pull legs, push, pull legs, six days per week anymore. Maybe a push, rest day, pull, rest day, legs rest day and then your next push day, something like that can be a much better option. So you're training four days per week or maybe a upper lower push pull leg split where you're training five days per week, usually anything more than five days per week, pretty much for any lifter, unless you're like a steroid, if you're on steroids, if you're on PEDs and you're like prepping for a bodybuilding show, maybe six days per week. But for most people, it's totally not necessary. So those are all things to consider. Some other things that aren't really lifting related, but just things that will help you age better and increase your longevity, cardio, staying in shape, staying healthy. Your heart health is very important. It's going to not only help you in the gym with your recovery between sets and sessions and your ability to push higher reps and things like that, but it's also just going to help your heart health. Like A healthier person is going to be able to train for more years than a not healthy person. So doing some low intensity cardio, zone two, a few days per week, maybe some occasional high intensity cardio is a great idea. Activity, so while I did say don't train your muscles as frequently perhaps when you're getting older and older and later in age, doing something and being active pretty much every single day instead of taking like full on rest days where you just sit on the couch all day and don't do anything is a good idea. Generally speaking, motion is lotion as you get older. So 
you're going to recover better between sessions. You're going to have better mental health. You're just going to feel better. You're going to have, be able to build better habits and consistency if you're doing something every day. Now, it doesn't have to be a structured workout. You can go hike. You can go surfing. You can go stand up paddle boarding, whatever it may be. But I highly suggest not taking full rest days unless some, if you're sick or like if there's some crazy circumstance or if you just like ran a race or something like that, definitely take a rest day. But like, Staying active even on your rest days is uh, very important as you get older. The last thing uh, I want to talk about before I make this entire episode on this um, is rep range. So a lot of people will think that kind of like this black and white thing where it's like low reps are more fatiguing and not good for longevity and high reps are the best way to train for longevity. And I disagree partially with both of those. So... I think right in the middle of low reps and high reps is generally the best rep range to train in, especially if you're natural. Natural trainees don't respond nearly as well to metabolic metabolic stress, which is one of the mechanisms of muscle growth that you get. Like think of like the pump, just pumping all these metabolites into the muscle, doing really, really, really high pumping reps. There's definitely merit to that, and like you should train with high reps occasionally. However, doing somewhere between six to 10 reps of most of your main lifts, especially, and perhaps a little bit higher reps on some of your isolation lifts or on some of your exercises where your joints don't feel great can be a very beneficial thing to do. Just because it's less fatiguing to do seven reps of say a hack squat than it is to with a rep in reserve than it is to do a set of 20 on a hack squat with one rep in reserve. Additionally, you're also building a lot more fatigue um, because you're just 20. If you've ever done a set of 20 on a hack squat or any sort of squat, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's very, very fatiguing. Now, if you're doing a set of 20 with three or four or five reps in reserve, that's one thing. And there may be a time and place to do that. So for example, if a lot of knee bending type exercises bang up your knees, and this kind of goes for any muscle group, then you are going to kind of trade off potential muscle stimulus of doing the six to 10 rep range with a rep or two in reserve for higher reps to get that blood pumping into the muscle. It kind of can be a little bit more friendly on your joints. So that may have sounded confusing, Generally speaking, just to break this down, six to 10 rep range for most lifts. However, if you are experiencing joint pain when you do like really hard sets of six to 10, then you can try and do less hard sets of higher reps and see how that feels in your joints. Sometimes that feels better. But if you're training to like one rep in reserve, um, one rep shy of failure or whatever it may be, it's way less fatiguing to do six to 10 reps than it is to do 20, 25, 30 reps in my experience and in a lot of people's experience. And that's not something you're probably going to find in a textbook or, or many books, but that's just something that I've picked up over the years of listening to very smart people talk and also doing it myself. And it's just something to consider. So being able to auto-regulate and kind of listen to your body is a, a huge thing. And knowing what when to push higher reps for with a little low intensity and when to push that moderate six to 10 rep range with more intensity to really take advantage of mechanical tension, which is like the main driver of muscle growth, the most effective driver of muscle growth. 
is a great idea. So anyway, yeah, that was the second question and we are pretty far into the episode. So let me go ahead and speed this up. Do you prefer using RIR or RPE? RIR is reps in reserve. RPE is rate of perceived effort or rate of perceived exertion. So I like to use a combination of both. I use RIR for like standard bodybuilding sets. So do three sets of nine with one rep in the tank. That's when I would use RIR. So basically if you do a set of nine and you could have done 10, that's one RIR. If you do a set of 10 and you that was it, like you know for sure you can't do another rep and you stop, that's RIR zero. And then it's a little different, like you can go to failure, which basically means you hit that RIR zero, but you do another rep, but you don't complete that rep. So that's like technical failure. You just can't complete another rep using the exact same muscles you're supposed to and not muscle fucking it, not getting crazy out of position and not putting yourself at risk of injury. So there's merit to training that way occasionally with certain exercises for certain people, but that's basically RIR. It can be used basically for interest set um, intensity prescriptions. The The main reason to use it is to make sure that you're not training too hard, but you're also not leaving too many reps in the tank. Because if you're, like I said earlier, if you're training with four or five RIR, you're leaving a lot of gains on the table. Basically, a five, five RIR set is a warm-up set, and it doesn't really stimulate muscle growth. So that's one thing to consider with RIR. Pretty simple. However, you know, even if you're very, very advanced, um, it's still subjective for the most part, unless you go to, all the way to failure. But it at least gives you some sort of gauge to use for monitoring and gauging your intensity. So RPE can be used for more things. I like using RPE for lower rep exercises. So like if you're doing like a two rep max on squat or a set of two uh, at like a nine RPE. A nine RPE, like you perhaps maybe could do another rep or maybe even two reps, but you're just kind of like gauging it on it's, it's really all subjective, like it comes with experience. So like I would use a nine RPE over a one RIR for like a set of two, just because when you're doing super, super low reps, you don't know exactly how many more reps in the tank you have, but you can kind of gauge it like, wow, that was like a nine out of 10 difficulty. So that's the way I like to use it for low reps. I also like to use it for cardio conditioning. Uh, like a 10 would be an all out like hit air bike sprint, a one would be just like an easy stroll. Um, and then like for zone two, I like to use like four to six. And then a fartlek or a tempo run would probably be up in the seven to eight range. So I like to use it again, just to subjectively rate my effort or my client's effort on a given conditioning session. And then also you can use it for higher reps. So like if you're doing a set of 55 pushups, like you really may not have any, you don't know exactly how many reps in the tank you have necessarily, but you can be like, okay, I probably have five or less reps. So that's like an eight and a half, nine RPE. So you can use it for that as well. You can also use it to judge your entire session. So say you're doing like a deload week, for example, maybe I will write for a client, hey, these deload workouts, the entire session should be like a five or a six RPE. So out of 10 being the hardest session you can possibly do, 
everything just grinding, everything close to failure or to failure, you can barely walk out of the gym, things like that, that'd be a 10. One basically means you go in and do a warm up. your deload session should be a five or six. Or if it's like in my Jack Gazelle program, I'll have session RPEs that kind of build throughout each phase, starting at like a seven, going all the way up to like a nine and a half, maybe even a 10 if it's like a max out day or a, a test day or something like that. So I like to use them both ways. Uh, you can kind of use whichever one you want. I mostly use RIR on myself because I mostly train for bodybuilding, but I also use RPE for some of my conditioning stuff. So next question is ratio of lengthened to shortened overload movements in a given session. So basically just to define these real quick, a lengthened overload movement is uh, exercise that is hardest in the lengthened position, whereas a shortened overload movement is an exercise that's hardest in the shortened position, obviously. So for example, uh, length and overload movements, squat, bench, things like that. Just very basic lifts, compound lifts for pressing and for the legs and then back because of the strength profile of back muscles, which I've talked about several times in previous episodes. Basically back is back muscles, lats, upper back, things like that are strongest in their lengthened position. So like the very beginning of a row or the very beginning of a pull down and they get weaker and weaker as you come lockout to lockout as you bring the weight to your chest or wherever you're bringing it to. So for the most part for pushing days and squat days, uh, leg days, you are gonna want to train mostly in the lengthened position because lengthened stimulus, overloading the lengthened position is what creates the most muscle growth but it also creates the most fatigue. So you can't only train in the lengthened position. You gotta do some shortened position movements as well. And there's benefit to it. You still, it's just because you don't grow as much in the short position, you still grow. But a lot of these exercises are like, they work the mid range of the muscle as well. Um, but they just kind of have a bias towards the short position and the length or the lengthened position. Exercises like a stiff-legged deadlift and a dumbbell fly, they are like true lengthened exercises. They only really work the muscle in the lengthened position because stiff-legged deadlift, your, your legs are straight the entire time. And a dumbbell fly, if you think of dumbbells, if you're laying down on a bench, the gravity is acting only on the dumbbells when you're in the lengthened position. As soon as you get to that mid-range and then kind of above you, you're the gravity's no longer, it, your, your joints are stacked up and the gravity's no longer acting on the dumbbell, which is therefore no longer acting on the muscle, which is why I don't really love dumbbell flies all that much. There's definitely some a time and a place for them, but I'd rather do a cable fly or a machine fly because you just have more shortened position tension. But that's kind of neither here nor there. As far as a percentage, I would say, obviously most of your lifts should be in the done in the lengthened position but some of them can be in the shortened position. Um, I would say about 80-20, but that's kind of me just off the top of my head spitballing. Uh, there's different situations where it would be more shortened or, or more lengthened. Probably for like a beginner, more uh, mid-range with a lengthened bias would be more beneficial as you get more advanced, maybe some more short position exercises. But one thing you want to consider is most, for the most part, there are exceptions to this. For the most part, you probably want to do your short overload exercises 
earlier in the workout and your lengthen position exercises later in the workout. And again, plenty of exceptions to this, but if you are overloading the lengthen position at the beginning of the workout, by the time you get to the end of the workout and you want to do short position exercises, that lengthen position is already very, very fatigued. So in order to get to the short position, you're going through that fatigue lengthen position in order to do it. So again, lots of exceptions, lots of nuance. This could probably be an entire episode and um, hopefully just that explanation kind of gives you a little bit of uh, explanation on what, like what to consider. So, you know, for example, you're not gonna probably do mostly lateral raises, mostly leg extensions, mostly hip thrusts, mostly preacher curls in your workout. You'd probably do mostly bench presses or mostly squats or mostly RDLs. And then a little bit of the stuff I just mentioned, because those are the short position exercises, like the, the lateral raises, the preacher curls and the hip thrusts and things like that. So yeah, if you just think about like the way a, a normal workout routine is set up, you probably get a better idea of kind of how it's programmed. Next question, best workout split for strength and athletic performance if I want to work out six days per week. So generally for strength, the best strength athletes in the world, they do actual strength training, like three, four, probably about four days per week, maybe five, but probably about four. The thing about strength is because it generates lots of fatigue, you need a lot of time to recover. Now that doesn't mean you can only work out four days per week. It just means there should be about four days of strength training. So there's lots of different ways to set this up, but when I like when I set up a program that has more than one goal, so in this case your performance goal is athletic performance, which that could be multiple different things. It could be endurance, it could be speed, quickness, jumping, um, sport performance, whatever that may be. But I like to set it up with a conjugate method. So your heavy maximal effort or sub-maximal effort strength training will be early in the week, so Monday, Tuesday, probably lower upper or upper lower. And then later in the week, probably Thursday, Friday, will be your repetition effort, AKA just kind of like hypertrophy training, or it'll be some speed training, some speed squats, deadlifts, bench, things like that. Or it will be sort of a combination of both, or maybe skill work, just depending on what you're trying to get strong in. So I would set it up like that. So Thursday, Friday would be also upper, lower or lower, upper. What to do in between there as far as athletic performance just really depends on what your goals are. Say your goals are to get faster at sprinting and also more explosive. So early in the week, you can throw in a little bit of jumping. You can throw in a little bit of sprinting. Maybe like you're do, you do like 200 meter repeats after your leg day or something like that. Um, you do some jumps as part of your warm up, but like very low volume, not a lot of them. Wednesdays, maybe because you like to train six days per week, say your day off is Sunday. Wednesday could be some strongman conditioning where you just do a big long circuit of carries, drags, things like that. And then Thursday, Friday are your other workout days. You can also throw in if it's just, if you're looking to get more explosive and faster, it would make sense to do like more of a dynamic effort day where you're doing banded speed squats or banded deadlifts 
or banded bench and maybe some hypertrophy as well. And these days you can also throw in some more explosive stuff like jumps as part of your warm-up, but like more jumps than you did early in the week. And maybe some more sprints, like high effort sprints. You want to obviously monitor your intensity and not be doing like tons of running flat sprints. You don't want to be doing jump after jump after jump. You don't want to be doing high rep sets of jumps and things like that. So, and then if you want to train on that Saturday, you could do another, maybe you go drag the sled for 45 minutes to an hour, stay in zone two, or maybe you actually go ruck or you go do any other sort of zone two activity, or you could, if you are prepping for a sport, your athletic performance is for a sport, that's when you go play your sport. Obviously, if you're trying to get better at a sport, you should probably play it more than once per week, or you should probably practice it more than once per week. So basically without getting into too many specific things, because I just don't have a lot of specifics as far as this question goes, I don't know what your athletic performance is. I would set up the lifting like that, and then you can sprinkle in some other things throughout the week as well. Generally, if you set up like max effort stuff at the beginning of the week, you also want to do max effort athletic performance things also at the beginning of the week. And you're doing your higher volume stuff towards the end of the week because that's those are all similar energy system requirements. And while your max effort, so your ATP, PC energy system is recovering from your early in the week workouts, you can train your aerobic system or a little bit of combination between glycolytic and aerobic. So that's pretty much how I would set that up. Next question, what is a good way to maintain a good training program in between months of field exercises? So a field exercise, this is a army question. Field exercises basically means you go out into what they call it the field and you go live out there and train out there and you're kind of living off probably out of tents and shitty food and things like that. So how, if you're doing that a lot, how would you structure uh, in between your training? This one can be pretty tough. It, it really just depends on how long you're back for. Obviously, like he's this guy is able to follow programs when he's back because his schedule allows for it. He's sleeping probably at home. He's be able to eat foods. He's not working crazy long days, probably getting much better sleep. So there's a few options. I mean, you can follow a program and then whenever you go out into the field, try and do some maintenance stuff, maybe bring some bands or a TRX with you or your running shoes and go run when you can or ruck. You probably ruck anyway on field exercises, just depending on what your MOS is. But even if you can just maintain a little bit of fitness while you're gone, you can come back and depending on how long you were gone, either restart the program. If you're gone more than like a week, I would say maybe longer than two weeks, I would restart the program. If you were gone less than that, then you can just come back and pick up where you left off. But also remember to listen to your body and not, you know, dive back in and just go as if you didn't take that time off because that's when you can kind of start messing yourself up. So just auto-regulation, that whole thing, like using common sense, super important. Another thing you can do is um, you can follow like a training team online and I'm going to have a training team here soon on Train Heroic where I have basically new programming every month. Anyone who wants to can sign up. It's literally less than a dollar a day. It's pretty sweet. 
and you can just pick up wherever that training program is at. You, you basically sign up for a monthly prescription, sorry, subscription, and you get programming just continuously and let, until you cancel your subscription. So you can do that and you can just pick up wherever it's at. That programming, because it's a program for like lots and lots of people, the way I'm going to do it is going to be RPE based. It's not going to be like percentage based. So like if you go out to, to the field for three weeks, like, and last time it was RPE eight for certain lifts or RIR one or two, you're not going to come back and it's going to be like to failure or anything like that. You potentially may, um, but again, that just is when common sense comes in. If I were to use percentages for this, and you were at like you know three reps of three with eighty six percent, and you got back and it's like one rep of two or one set of two for ninety eight percent, then that's when you would probably want to like restart or wait till the next month's programming or something like that. But those are all options. This is a really tough one, and ideally you can get to a place where you're able to create kind of your own training or you you have a program to work off of but you can tailor it based on your needs and what's going on in your life so you can just auto regulate once again but if you don't have a ton of fitness knowledge that can be really really hard and it's unfortunate like you go out in the field you feel like you lose all this strength all this fitness which unless you're going out for a really really long time then you're really not losing a ton of strength or muscle but you are losing some skill. So when you get back, lifts are gonna feel a little bit foreign to you if you haven't been doing them, like a barbell squat. If you take you know, three, four weeks off, you're gonna come back and that lift's gonna feel a little bit foreign because you just haven't been practicing it and you probably shouldn't push the intensity when you first get back. But yeah, tough situation. Um, can be really tough to follow programs like that. It may benefit you to get a coach, but then again, like if you're leaving for several weeks at a time, then you're kind of paying a coach while you're gone. That's not necessarily the best situation, but I will be sure when I release this program, there's a bunch of other programs out. My buddy, Brian from modern athlete strength has some awesome tactical athlete programs that you can choose from on train heroic. Again, that's modern athlete strength. Just give them a follow. And if you go to their bio, you should be able to get to their programs. You can definitely take a look at those in the meantime. Um, but I'll also have some programs coming out in July that will be, I'm going to have one, this is the first time I've really talked about this. I'm going to have one program that is for more older banged up tactical athletes. And then I'm going to have another one that's for newer guys, guys who are younger, more fresh, less banged up, but the program is going to be set up in a way that is not going to make you more banged up. The only real differences are going to be certain exercises and also like frequency and things like that. So I'll continue talking about this um, and I'll keep posting about it and keeping you guys updated. But yeah, that's coming out in the future. So hopefully that kind of answers your question. Just make the best of it and use a little bit of common sense. Don't try and do anything too crazy. Next question, what are the benefits of tempo pushups? So Push-ups are a body weight exercise and you can certainly add weight to them and I recommend adding weight to them once you can do more than like 15-ish reps. But you can also make exercises, in this case push-ups, harder by slowing the tempo down. So 
I even if I could do 60 push-ups without stopping, I could make 12 push-ups feel really, really hard by messing with tempo. So that's the main reason that you're just making the exercise move a lot harder by slowing down the lowering portion of the lift. Also, it helps you work on form, technique, connecting mentally to your muscles, slower reps. You're just going to have your muscles contracted and engaged the entire time, and you're not going to be using momentum. So that's another huge one. A lot of people don't do push-ups well, believe it or not. Really simple exercise, but it's. I've seen some absolute dumpster fires when it comes to push-up execution. So it allows you to do that. It allows you to focus on allowing your shoulder blades to kind of wrap around your rib cage, retract, protract, which is one main advantage of push-ups over several other, most other chest pushing exercises. So also you can speed the tempo up. You can go faster. You can do explosive push-ups and that's great for fast twitch muscle fiber development. Think of jumping with your lower body. I talk about this all the time. Well, you can also jump with your upper body using push-ups. Uh, that's another great one. And also there are cases where you can absolutely grow muscle from doing that. So slowing tempo down, speeding it up, uh, both for push-ups and basically any other exercise is great. Um, you can really focus on the fully lengthened position, the bottom of the rep. That's the most important part of the rep for muscle growth, but it's also a very easy part of the rep to cheat and kind of let gravity and the stretch reflex take over. So you're missing out a little bit on gain. So um, slowing it down, speeding it up is very beneficial. All right, next question, does carb timing matter for hard aerobics? So aerobic training, if we're getting into technicalities here, aerobic training should not be that hard. Aerobic training would be zone two, maybe zone three, but harder training would be zone four, zone five, sprints, repeats, things like that. Either way, carb timing does play a role. Um, not as big of a role for zone two, like lower intensity training, as it does for zone four, zone five sprints. However, it still definitely is something to consider. It's not as important though as overall carbohydrate intake. It's also not as important as overall calorie intake. So basically if you're eating low calorie, if you're trying to cut, carb timing matters more. If you're eating plenty of calories to fuel, uh, your overall carb intake is usually going to cover you. But your body has a couple of different ways that it can fuel itself for this type of training. Aerobic training, we'll talk aerobic training, so zone two style training, low intensity, long duration aerobic training that we've already talked about earlier in this episode. But basically, it's there's a couple different sources your body can use for basically achieving that work to do that actual cardio training. You can, it prefers carbohydrates. It prefers either glycogen or glucose, which are pretty much very similar. Glycogen is just like long-term. That's what you build up when you eat. That's like your overall carb intake will fill your glycogen stores over time. And then glucose would be more like carb timing. Like I just had a half a Gatorade or I just ate a goo packet or something like that. That's like actual circulating glucose and your body can use both of those for fuel. Glycogen ends up running out. So if you are doing longer duration aerobic training, it can benefit you to absolutely 
during that training consume carbs. That way you have circulating levels of uh, glucose and you can kind of keep your glycogen stores from completely running out. So with that being said, your body can also use fat for fuel when you're doing longer duration cardio, low intensity. Um, it's not its preferred fuel source, but which a lot of people will say it's not, but it is an option. And sometimes it can be beneficial to not consume these carbs and get your body accustomed to tapping into fat. It just takes a little bit longer. It's again, not its preferred fuel source, but the more often you do it, the more you allow your body to adapt to using fat for fuel, uh, the better. And also fat is a basically never ending fuel source. Like you're not going to run out of fat stores on a two hour run or three hour run. Whereas you absolutely can run out of glycogen if you don't fuel during a two or three hour run. So doing a little bit of both, great idea. However, if you're going for performance or if you don't really care about allowing your body to switch over to fat, um, a, lot of th- a lot of people also have this misconception where just because your body's using fat for fuel, that doesn't mean you're going to lose more fat from it. Um, you, your calorie intake versus how many calories you burn. That is the only thing that's going to determine whether you lose fat or gain fat. So using fat as a fuel source, although it has performance benefits, it's not going to make you lose more fat. So definitely like huge mis- misconception. I mean, a lot of people still think that like I'm in my fat burning zone, which means I'm going to burn more fat. No, it doesn't. It just means, well, yes, you are going to burn more fat, but burning fat for fuel does not equate to fat loss. So just keep that in mind. For harder stuff, so hard anaerobic training, zone four, zone five, think of like a 400 meter repeat on a track, a 500 meter row repeat, HIT style training, although HIT does not tap into glycogen like um, like a longer duration one, like a 400. But either way, you probably want to consider carb timing, at least having um, completely topped off glycogen stores. So like if you're eating a lot of carbs overall, that's going to probably fuel you through a, you know, eight times 400 meter repeat session. But if you don't eat a lot of carbs and you still want to perform really well, you really, really want to consider carbohydrate timing. Or if you're low on calories and you want to still perform well, you really want to consider carbohydrate timing and, and timing your carbs around that workout. That way you have at least some fuel because those higher intensities, body fat is pretty much not an option for fuel. Obviously, like you're almost always going to be somewhere between anaerobic and aerobic. However, your performance will suffer tremendously if you don't have topped off glycogen stores and or circulating uh, glucose that you can tap into for energy um, for that style of training. So. Carb timing, important only if, especially if you are eating low carb otherwise or eating low calorie otherwise. So I would say it just depends on what you're doing. It depends on your overall intake, but definitely something to consider. But it's not the most important thing. Next question, I'm 32, I weigh 148. Is it realistic to train to be able to squat 315 for three and run a 35 minute five mile? Yes, it absolutely is. Um, it, it does depend on where you're at now. And this guy DM'd me and let me know kind of. He's at 275 
for two for squats. And he hasn't run a five mile in a while, but he ran a 23 minute three mile, which is under eight minute miles. So this is doable. This is a seven, seven, five minute miles. And he's got to put what, man, math on the spot. I don't know, 50 pounds on his, it's, it's less than 50, damn it. Uh, 40 pounds on his squat and do an extra rep. So yeah, this is possible. It's just going to take time. You got to do a lot of it. Um, if you have goals like this, my Jack is L program, not to like <laughs> shameless plug, I guess. My Jack is L program is pretty excellent for it. It's going to make you a faster runner and it's going to allow you to get stronger at all the power lifts, but that includes the squat. The way it's set up each, every other week, you're going to do a max effort squat on the first day. And then the, the next week would be a max effort deadlift. But if you really want to prioritize the squat, you can just do max effort squats every week and then you'll get plenty of deadlift accessory exercises uh, to train the posterior chain. But if you follow that program, I'm not saying like just follow it for 16 weeks and you're definitely going to get there, but you're gonna get make progress towards it. I will say if his goal was just to get that squat, I would have him gain weight. Um, and I probably at 148 squatting 315 for three is like pretty damn impressive. Um, so gaining a little bit of weight might help him. I don't know what his height is, but you also have to consider gaining weight can also slow you down if you're running. So either way, I would still probably try and gain some muscle. And if you were to follow my Jack Azell program, you would gain some muscle if you eat enough food. So maybe if you put five to eight pounds on your body weight and really stay diligent with the running, which probably means you're gonna have to eat a lot of food, um, it's going to allow you, it's just going to improve your leverages for squat. It's going to allow you to continue building muscle, which is probably going to be required um, to get, to increase your squat by that much. And then just stay diligent with the running and it should not detract, gaining weight shouldn't detract too much from your runtime. But yeah, it's just, I don't have an exact time frame, and you shouldn't really, you can set goals that have like time periods on them, but I wouldn't set your expectations too high. This could take uh, eight months. This could take a year. This could take three, four years. It really just depends on your genetics, how hard you work, your experience levels, how how much you're willing to eat, and your recovery. Lots and lots of different factors. So good luck. Let me know if you need any uh, help with that. Next question: When you were on a dive team, how often did you run, ruck, and swim in a week? So it depended on the week. Um, if we were basically back at Fort Bragg and not really doing any super demanding training, we would usually do one or two team workouts per week. Uh, most of them weren't rucks or runs unless we had a ruck or run coming up. I was in charge of developing our team PT program that, that we did together. Some teams do a lot of PT together. Other teams don't do any and other teams do a little bit and we always did a little bit and I always made it a conditioning session just because I did a lot of guys had were following their own strength programs and guys tend to put conditioning back on the back burner compared to strength training generally speaking so we would just do conditioning sessions most of them would not be runs or rucks unless we had a run or ruck coming up it would usually be some form of machine based cardio or strongman conditioning, drags, carries, things like that. Or sometimes we'd do hill sprints. If we were gonna run um, and didn't have a run coming up, 
the only running we would do would be hill sprints. Uh, as far as swimming, it depended. It really just depended on if if we had guys training up for CDQC, which is a combat diver qualification course, so special forces like dive dive qualification. Um, we would do two, sometimes three pool sessions per week. But it really just depended, like if if we were not at Fort Bragg, if we were traveling, if we were training, if we had crazy training going on that was like just not conducive to getting early morning workouts in, um, then we would usually not. But a lot of times we would go to the pool every couple weeks or a couple times per week. And me being the medic, I would basically sit on the pool deck with uh, O2 and read (laughs) because it's an army requirement if you were doing dive training, which I mean, it makes sense. Like a lot of the dive training like is pretty hazardous. You're staying underwater for a really long period of time, getting super, super fatigued. So you absolutely need a medic on hand with an AED and a O2 bottle. But that's pretty atypical. A lot of teams, like I said, don't train together or they do all their training together, which I would hate. Um, I just think doing the same thing as everyone else is doing, regardless of your fitness level, you're, you you got 12 guys on a team, not a single two guys are going to have the same fitness levels like from top to bottom. So individualizing your training, I think is very important, but also like cohesiveness and doing an occasional conditioning session with your team. I think that's cool as well. And obviously if you have, if you're going to dive school, you got to go to the pool and get that done. So it really just depends on what team you go to. Next question. All right, I'm going to rapid fire these. Um, this episode's taking forever. I'm going to rapid fire the final, we'll say, five more questions. What time of day do you prefer to train? Now that I can set my own schedule, I train midday most of the time, sometimes early in the morning. But all I'll say on this is train whatever time of day you can build consistency around. There is an ideal time of day to train, but for you, the most ideal time of day to train is whenever you can get it in. Next question, were you an x-ray? If so, is your SFAS program similar to SOPSI? So x-ray just means a contract that you sign to go from civilian all the way to try out for special forces. And yes, I was. My SFAS program is my special forces assessment selection program. And the last acronym, SOPSI, is Special Operations Preparation and Conditioning, which you go to before selection if you are an x-ray. So no, my there are some similarities uh, between my SFAS program and SOPSI. However, at least when I went through, this is a long time ago, it could be way different now. When I went through SOPSI, there was a lot of extra shit that was not necessary. We did lots of CrossFit style workouts. We did a burpee mile Basically, they were just destroying us for three straight weeks. Um, It got us in great shape. Like I was 22 years old, so I can recover from anything. But I think the specificity is was the main thing missing from SOPSI. That is basically my SFAS program is highly specific. You're only training for the physical training demands of selection. You're not doing a bunch of other random stuff that just makes you feel like you did something hard, but also doesn't get you fit. So could be different now, but that's kind of, that's how it was when I went through. Next question. Do you do one-on-one coaching for soft candidates? Yes, I do. Most, uh, yeah, most of my clients are prepping for selection either in the near future or the distant future. So absolutely. If you are interested, 
hit me up on Instagram, just send me a DM and we will chat. Next question, best way to improve running? Oh man, uh, I get this question all the time. Just, you gotta run more um, and you gotta maintain a little bit of awareness on your paces. So depending on how bad you are at running now, probably most of your running should be low intensity, aerobic base building, building that base up. So that way, once you have built the volume on your connective tissue and gotten kind of your aerobic system more efficient, you can start throwing in higher intensity stuff. If you have to improve running in a very short period of time, then you're gonna have to throw in some more higher intensity stuff. But this question's like so general and so unspecific that I'm not gonna get into every single way to improve your running. But you're gonna have to run more. You're gonna have to put a little bit of thought into your pacing and your volume and your intensity. And you can hit me up if you have more specifics and we can get you running faster. Next question, tips on building muscle over 50. Yeah, it's really the same thing that works for building muscle at any age. It's just gonna be a little bit slower. It also depends on when you started training. If you started training at 45 years old, you're gonna be able to build a lot more muscle in your 50s. If you started training at 15 years old, any muscle you possibly can build in your 50s is a big win. So same thing for any style of training. If you go back to the question I answered on training principles for longevity and muscle growth, those definitely apply to you, almost all of them, if not all of them. Uh, but yeah, just be consistent and don't set your expectations too high. Don't compare yourself, if, especially if you've been lifting for a really long time, don't compare yourself to your numbers when you were 25. Compare yourself to like last week. Like, am I better this week than I was last week? And some weeks you might not even be, but if you're trending upward month by month by month, then you're on the right track. But you really gotta take everything lots, a lot more seriously as far as recovery, nutrition, stress management, sleep when you're older because you're just not going to be able to do those things as well, especially if you don't take them seriously. Um, your hormones are just not where they used to be. Obviously, like you can get on TRT, and I'm not like recommending that, but it is an option. If you get on TRT and you, you had low testosterone, then you will definitely build some muscle. Um, but yeah, it's really no different, just slower progress. Next question, am I weak sauce since my conventional deadlift is significantly less than my trap bar deadlift? Nope, this is very normal, just the way the weight is distributed on a hex bar deadlift. It's more midline in the body. It's less of a posterior chain dominant lift and it is easier to execute for most people. They can, they can keep a more upright torso and their hips are in line with the bar as a, or where the weight is as opposed to a conventional deadlift with a barbell. Your hips are always gonna be behind the bar, behind the weight. So this is super common. If it's way different, then I mean, it really just depends. Like if you're a power lifter, yeah, this is a huge problem. But if you're just like a regular person who wants to get fit, not a problem at all. Um, but you can always try and work on your straight bar deadlift and be consistent with it and continue to practice technique, add weight over time, all the basic strength gaining principles and you'll be all right. Next question, supplements for barbell squat, but no machines. So supplemental, like supplementary lifts, basically uh, lifts that you can sub in for barbell squats if you don't have access to any machines. So really not a lot as far as what will carry over 
to uh, a barbell squat unless you have a safety bar. Safety bar squat is great. That would be by far the best choice. But if you don't have that, you kind of got to do goblet squats. But goblet squats, if you're relatively strong, goblet squats aren't going to really keep your squat strength up. I would just personally focus on lots of uh, single leg work, split squats, lunges, things like that. Get your whatever. Everyone's got a weak side. Everyone's got a strong side. So like really getting that symmetry, trying to bring up your weak side for a while until you have access to a barbell squat again or until you have access to machines like a hack squat, dead, um, hack squat, leg press, pendulum squat, things like that. Best way to improve endurance for a five mile run. Option one, run less times per week. Option two, run three, four, three to four times per week. So I don't really understand this question, but generally speaking, again, this goes back to if you're already a pretty good runner, you can run fewer times per week and make progress. You can do a couple speed sessions, whether it's repeats, 1K repeats, mile repeats on the track one day, or a fartlek, fartlek run later in the week or a tempo run later in the week, maybe a little bit of zone two. If you suck at running right now and you really have a lot of work to do, yeah, more running. However, you don't want to dive into it too quickly and just do too much running or too much volume or too much intensity and then hurt yourself. So this, in this case, you would slowly work up to it, like I said in the earlier question. And then as you build that aerobic base, you would start doing more speed stuff and give yourself some time. But yeah, I don't really understand the question. However, I think he is meaning like, should I run less, but maybe have more intention or should I just run more? And I would say it's kind of a combination of both. We'll make this the last question. Thoughts on Broncos as a fitness test for rugby. So this test off the top of my head, I'm going to try and remember what the test is. Basically you have you're on a field, football field, rugby field, whatever, grass field. You have a cone at 60 yards, a cone at 40 yards, and a cone at 20 yards. And you are running, you're starting, you're running down to 60, back to the start line, down to 40, back to the start line, down to 20, and back to the start line. That's one round, and you're, try, you're trying to do five repetitions of that as quickly as possible. So I can imagine this is absolute hell. Um because I've done something similar, just less running. And yeah, it, it, it was terrible. So this is probably going to be four minutes. I would guess like 4.30 would be a really good time. Maybe five minutes would be a good time. Um, but you'd be absolutely destroyed at the end. I think it's a great way to test your aerobic capacity for sure. Um, definitely involves some changing of direction. If you were to just run this, I don't know the total yardage, but if you were to just run this straight, it would be a hell of a lot easier because you're not, it takes a lot of effort and energy to stop and turn around several, several times, which you're doing there. You're doing it, what, 15 times throughout the whole thing. So that just takes a lot out of you. So I think it's a great test of aerobic capacity for rugby or really any sport that is similar. I, I think soccer uses it as well, football. I don't I would say it's a little less, uh, the application for football would be a little bit less just because you're not going to be running for five minutes straight in football, whereas you could be in soccer or, or rugby. So I would say great. Um, obviously, it's not testing everything, but for aerobic capacity, sounds terrible, but also sounds like a good test. So if you're about to do it, good luck. Uh, hope, hope it goes well for you. I can only imagine that it's probably going to be awful. 
But yeah, anyway, rapid fired the last few. Um, try to keep these episodes around an hour. So that's kind of why I sped up. But yeah, hope you guys got something out of it. And um, I will be back again. I'm going to do a bonus episode this week on how to train for special forces assessment and selection. And I'm excited about that one. So be on the lookout for another one. But yeah, hope everyone has a great week. Thank you for listening. Till next time, Terminator out. Thank you for listening. If you like this show and want to start crushing your goals, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And for more fitness content, follow me on Instagram at Terminator underscore training or check out my website, TerminatorTraining.com. All right, guys, Terminator out.